Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Ogletown. And a fun fact about myself is that before coming on staff here back in March, I was a teacher for the past seven years of my life. And so I know that with such a great announcement that was just made and with all this information at your fingertips about Drew, the temptation is going to be to let that distract you from the Word of God this morning. And so do me a favor, go ahead and tuck those packets away. They'll be there at the end of the service. And I promise in return, I will try my best to get you out of class early this morning. Okay? (laughs) So if you are new to us or you are joining us for the first time, uh, we are in a short series called Songs of Christmas, where we're just looking at different songs that pop up in the Gospel of Luke that are centered around this Jesus And last week, Evan led us through Zechariah's song, uh, where we looked at uh, the song that he breaks out in after the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And from the passage of scripture that we just read this morning, I'm sure you've figured out that today we're going to be looking at Mary's song, which is commonly known as the Magnificat. But before we get there, I do just want us to pause for a second to take in the passage of Scripture that Sharon just read for us, because it bears striking resemblance to the passage that was read last week before the sermon. And what we're going to see in both of these accounts, if we slow down and look at it, is that one, both Zechariah and Mary are visited by the angel Gabriel. He arrives on the scene, and there is an initial response of fear by both of them. After things have settled down and they calm down a little bit, the angel Gabriel makes a declaration to both of them of a seemingly impossible pregnancy. To Zechariah, he says, your wife, who is old and barren, uh, she will give birth to a son. And to this Mary this week, he looks at a young virgin woman and says, you too will conceive. There's promises about these Uh, miraculous children's futures, their ministries, their identities that Gabriel reveals to both Zechariah and Mary. And it's followed by a pretty logical question. How? How are we going to do that? Right? Zechariah asks because of his wife's previous experiences with fertility. And Mary asks, obviously, as someone that has not been wed yet as a virgin. And what the angel Gabriel responds with is a sign. He says, I'm going to give you a sign so that you can know that this promise will surely come to pass. For Zechariah, it was actually, he was made mute, if you remember from last week. And the sign that Mary receives this uh, morning is the sign that her cousin Elizabeth, speaking of this same woman, has been pregnant now for six months. And he says, this is the sign, and it's to show you that anything will be impossible with God. So we have two very similar stories, but we have two very different people. You have Zechariah, this great high priest that's in the Lord's service, who's approaching the latter portion of his life. He is uh, almost certainly on the way out of his ministry career. And now this week you have Mary, almost certainly a teenage girl at this time, living a small town with a small life, just basically on the verge of starting her own life. And so I want to just say I hope that you see from these stories and how similar they are but by how different these people are that there is not a certain criteria that someone needs to meet before God decides to use them. 
You don't have to uh, reach a certain status. You don't have to have a certain uh, way in this world for God to use you. He uses whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and for whatever he wants. And what's interesting about these two characters is this. You would expect that if he was to go to Zechariah, the high priest in the service of the Lord, and this little lowly Mary, that if one of them was going to be displaying faith, you'd say it's surely going to be Zechariah, right? Well, we catch a glimpse that it's actually the other way around. And I say that because we, we see a big difference in the how question that both of them asks as well. And it's the response that Gabriel gives. When Zechariah asks, how is this going to happen? He actually gets rebuked for his unbelief. And it's the reason that he becomes mute. But when Mary asks the same question, how is this going to happen? The same rebuke does not follow. He just simply clarifies the situation and gives her an answer to her question. And it's later on when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth that we find out she actually did believe the words of Gabriel. So you see the motives for the question were different. Zechariah had unbelief in his heart when he asked, and Mary had belief. And after she receives her answer from Gabriel, you actually see a glimpse of this belief in her. Her her response is basically this. She says, I am the Lord's servant, so whatever he desires for my life is exactly what should happen. And this sounds like a simple statement. I think it's one that we would all be willing to make where we'd say, yeah, whatever the Lord would have for me. But you have to remember the context into which this uh, young girl is living. She is not yet wed to Joseph. This pregnancy would be seen as a shameful thing. And she stands in the face of probably a uh, pretty dark future. But she still determines in her heart that she will obey the Lord. She may have faced public shame. She may have faced divorce from Joseph. And if she did, she would have looked at the future of never marrying again, maybe being forced from her home to live in destitution and uh, poverty, which in this culture and in this society is not an easy task. But this is what I love about Mary. She knows that to be a servant of the Lord is to respond to him in faith, no matter what the circumstance is. And so what great things we could learn from this young teenage girl that stares down a future that is uncertain, that stares down a difficult decision and says, I'm the Lord's servant, do with me what you will. And may it be a reminder to us to not take the young people in our midst for granted, that we can indeed learn from them. And so last week, Evan made some exhortations to those that were viewing maybe their ministry years as being over. And this week, I'd like to address a different group of people in the room, specifically the children and the teens. And so if you're in this room right now, I want you to look up here. Give me your attention because I want you to hear me loud and clear. You are not too young to be used by the Lord. You do not have to wait to become an adult for your ministry for Jesus to begin. If you are a willing vessel, the Lord can and will use you to make a difference in the lives of your friends, your families, your classmates, teammates, neighbors, whoever you can think of. So I'm going to, in my teacher fashion, assign some homework for you kiddos today. Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you, when you get in the car, I want you to talk to your parents, and I want you to ask them, how can I be a light to the people that the Lord has placed around me? 
And then I want you to listen to the godly wisdom that comes from your parents. Take in the information, and I want you to begin to implement a plan as to how you can implement those things in your life. But back to the story. As I alluded to earlier, after her interaction with Gabriel, Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth in verses 39 to 45. And it's upon this entrance into her house that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps, maybe gives her a swift kick to the diaphragm to let her know, hey, she is indeed pregnant with the Messiah. And then Elizabeth exclaims a blessing upon Mary. So let's zoom the camera out now. And let's think of God's entire salvation history, the storyline of the Bible. We see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, after sin enters the world, that God does make a promise that there will be a Messiah that will show up on the scene and he will make all things right. He will correct everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. And all throughout the Old Testament, you catch glimpses as to what this Messiah would look like. You see little hints here and there, but the Messiah never fully shows up on the scene. And then, 400 years of silence. I saw, look at all the eyes that just shot up. You guys couldn't handle the five seconds of silence, right? Imagine 400 years of silence. What is going through the minds of these Israelites? Is there worry? Is there doubt? Is there confusion? Why haven't God's promises come to pass? But it's after these 400 years of silence that the most important 30 years in human history is about to take place. This Messiah is about to break in on the scene, and he's going to do it in a rather peculiar way. Where is it that we see God in these moments before the most important 30 years of history occupying himself? It's with two obscure yet humble women that are experiencing miraculous pregnancies. And Mary, reflecting on all of this, is moved by this vision that she has of God. This God that she worships is one that loves the lowly. And so she breaks out in song with cheerful humility. So let's read what she says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so if we look at the way that Mary structures this song, most, uh, the song starts off with just a couple of verses of exuberant praise for the Lord with very specific reasons as to why she is praising him. But then she finishes out this song and spends the majority of her time uh, just basically describing who God is in general. And so with our time this morning, we're actually going to work backwards from her train of thought. We're going to start with the general truth and then make our way back to the specific praise that's offered to God in an effort to see how Mary's song can become our song as well. And so the first reason that we sing this song is because of God's character. 
It's in the second half of verse 49 that the shift takes place and that Mary makes a declaration about who God is where she says, God is holy. So what does that mean? Because God's characteristics are not like our own. And what I mean by that is this. If you were to think of someone and you said, that person is loving, what you mean is that more often than not, in particular situations and circumstances, that person is going to uh, interact with others in a loving way. But that person certainly doesn't do it perfectly, and they do not do it all the time. But when we refer to God, we would not say God is loving. We would actually say, take, take it a step further and say God is love, meaning that he is the source and the perfect picture of what love is all the time. There's not a single moment in the existence of God where he is not acting in a loving way towards his creation. And so in reference to Mary's statement about God being holy, we see that what she's actually saying is that God's nature, his very essence, is holiness. He's completely free from sin. His ways are not our ways. He is separate from and exalted above all of his creation, including you and me. All of his attributes are perfect, and they all work together in perfect harmony called holiness. And here's where we can often make the mistake. We, we fear God sometimes. We look at God in all of his holiness, and we begin to think about our own lack of holiness in our own lives. And so we begin to fall into this trap, and the trap is that of works righteousness, where we think to ourselves, man, this holy God, there's no way I can approach him. I've got to get my act together. I've got to clean myself up. I've got to do this, do that, and then maybe one day God will accept me. Or maybe we make this mistake in thinking that because God is so great that he shows partialism. He shows favoritism towards certain individuals that are great. Or because he's so highly exalted, he's going to show favoritism towards those on this earth that are exalted among men. So what do we do? We puff ourselves up. We try to make ourselves seem better than we really are. We put on the mask and we don't let anyone see our weaknesses, all the while looking down on those who just can't get their act together. But what we see in this song and in the entirety of Scripture is that the opposite is the case. God's holiness has expressed itself and it will continue to express itself by exalting the lowly and abasing the haughty. This is exactly Mary's point and what fills her with joy. Look at verse 50 with me. God's mercy is for who? It's for those who fear him from generation to generation. And this sort of fear is a reverential or a respectful fear. So what he doesn't do is he doesn't look at our accomplishments, our feats, our bank accounts, or our seeming grasps of power. He simply looks at our disposition towards him. He looks on those who display humility in relation to him, and he showers them with mercy. And it's exactly this group, the lowly, that God has a track record of raising up. There's no way to tell for sure who Mary's thinking about in these moments when she reflects on all of this, but maybe she goes back to her Old Testament knowledge where she thinks of the little shepherd boy David who rises up to become the greatest king in Israel's history, Maybe she sees similarities between herself and Hannah, the barren and ridiculed woman who cried out to the Lord and he heard her. And if you actually look at Hannah's prayer and Mary's song in this chapter, the similarities are striking. Or maybe she thinks of Joseph, the young boy that's sold into slavery in the nation of Egypt. 
He ends up imprisoned while he's there, but then rises to become number two in all the land. There's no way to tell what she's thinking about, but perhaps she has others in mind when she makes these following statements in verses 51 to 53 that'll be on the screen behind me. What we see in these uh, couple of verses is a direct comparison in the way that God reacts to and treats the lowly compared to the haughty. So let's summarize. In verse 51, it says that he does what? He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So this God, he looks at those that are proud and puffed up and arrogant and think much of themselves, and he says, I'm going to confuse their understanding. In verse 52, it says that he brings down the mighty. Another way of saying that would be he destroys the powerful, those that think they have authority here on this earth. And in the same breath, he exalts the lowly. That's him lifting up the little guy, the guy that has no influence, the guy that has no power. Verse 53, he fills the hungry. That's to say that those who have little or lack a whole lot, he is going to provide for and he will satisfy them while he sends the rich away empty. That means that he turns those away that had much in this world, but nothing for eternity. And so just a point to pause at here is I don't want us to be uh, misunderstood or confused about. He is not saying that anyone that has any sort of material wealth in this earth is going to be cast away from him. You can absolutely have earthly treasures while simultaneously storing up heavenly things for yourself. This is specifically referring to those that have made their entire lives about chasing a dollar. They've had no time for the Lord because their greed and their love of money has set in. And so it's clear from Mary's words and from the whole Bible that God is not partial to the rich, the powerful, or the proud. And this should make sense, right? If you really think about it, how could God be partial to the things in this world which are so often obstacles or replacements for God rather than things that point to him? There have been many in this world, vast numbers of people have come and gone and perished because they were enamored by pride, power, and wealth. So Mary's Magnificat here serves as a word of warning to us as well uh, as salvation. She's saying, look at what God is really like. He's not impressed by any of your pride, power, or wealth. He has mercy on those who fear him and who are willing to humble themselves and turn from the ego-boosting accumulation of wealth for the lowliness of self-denial for the sake of others. This is the way that God is. This is how he expresses his holiness. And does it not make sense that this is how he would interact with creation? This great God, this one that possesses such greatness, would he not lift up those that are willing to step back and admire this greatness? while bringing low those that have no time for his greatness and don't make much of him? I think the greatest example of this would probably be a story that happens in chapter 16 of Luke's gospel. It's a story that you're probably familiar with. It's about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And if you aren't familiar with the story, here's basically the summary. There's a rich man that lives a life of pomp and power, and he has little concern for those that are in need around him. While Lazarus is a poor man with poor health that actually sits at the gate of this rich man daily begging for food. And if that's the entirety of the story, 
I think that the majority of people in 2023 all around the world are going to look at these two individuals and they're going to say, it's the rich man. That's exactly who I want to be like. He has life figured out. He's got his act together. But by the time the story ends, the roles are reversed. The script is flipped and God does what only God can do. We catch a glimpse into eternity where it's actually this poor beggar Lazarus that is in heaven being comforted by the Lord And it's that rich man crying out in torment from hell. And what we recognize is that this world is not all we have to live for. God's kingdom is one that is often referred to as an upside-down kingdom because he does things backwards from the way that we would expect. The words and actions of Jesus himself in Matthew 20 are brought to mind here, and those passages of Scripture are going to be on the screen. We'll look at two of them. To the first point, the one that says, so the last will be first and the first last, Jesus constantly taught all throughout his earthly ministry that our perspective needs to change. It needs to be shaped more into the way that God views this world. And on Jesus' sermon on the mountain, Matthew 5, this is a point in his ministry where he is basically redistributing the law to the nation of Israel and getting to the heart of the matter and teaching them what it's truly about. And here's who he identifies the kingdom of God with. He says it belongs to those who are poor in spirit, pure in heart, meek, merciful, the mourners, peacemakers, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not your typical list of all-stars. This is not who the world would look at and say, that's what I want to be. But in the second statement on the screen, Jesus doesn't just speak these things. He says this, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus practices what he preaches. This Jesus, the same Jesus that is the creator and sustainer of all things, the one that is the promised Messiah and the one who is actively right now in this moment, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over this world, it's this God-man who comes to us as a baby in the womb of this Mary. This God-man, the one that has the fullness of God in him, takes on human flesh so that he can meet us in our lowly and sinful state. He didn't come ready to just crack the whip and take up some sort of earthly power or kingship. He actually came to us in his first arrival as the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 53. And it's this suffering servant that came to us as a man and lived a life of perfect submission, showing us what that looks like. But he doesn't just do that because his mission is much more intense than that. He comes to us so that he can actually suffer the wrath of God. That he would take it on, dying in our place, nailed to a tree. So that lowly sinners like ourselves could look to that sacrifice and be saved. And this is the beauty of our God, guys. The fact that he would look at his creation, see just a group of rebellious sinners that are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd, oftentimes not even realizing their dire condition before the Lord. And what does he do? He reaches down and he extends compassion and mercy on them in the form of Jesus Christ. He comes to us and meets us where we're at. And this is why we have a second reason to sing. We sing because God has done great things for us. 
In verses 48 and 49, Mary has learned from the Old Testament that God abases the proud but blesses the lowly that seek him for mercy. But it's now in this moment with this angel Gabriel and this interaction with her cousin Elizabeth that she has found that the truths that she sees in God's word are actually true, true in her own experience as well. She has trusted in the promises of God and she has found favor in his eyes. She will give birth to the Savior of the world, and it's because of these reasons that she proclaims these words. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And this is where we need to stop and address a couple of different groups in the room here. Friends, if you are with us for the first time, maybe you're an unbeliever, you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, I'm so glad that you're here, but I have to warn you that if you find yourself identifying with some of the people that were mentioned earlier, the proud, those that think so highly of themselves that they have no time for the Lord, those that are self-sufficient, you feel like you have uh, made a future for yourself, you've gotten yourself to where you're at right now and you don't need provision from the Lord, or even if you're just unwilling to give up the rule over your life where you'd say, I'm the one that controls my future, I make my decisions and I'm not going to submit to anyone, I would plead with you to come to Christ. We have seen God's displeasure with these sorts of people and it is a dangerous path to walk down but there is good news. If you would humble yourself before this holy God and recognize that you, just like everyone else in this room, is a lowly sinner that has nothing to offer to him to earn his favor, he's willing to meet you with mercy. This statement that's on the screen behind me can be the statement of your life as well because he who is mighty has done great things and those great things are that he offered up his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And if you would turn from that sin, would be willing to become a servant for him and trust in that sacrifice, you will be saved. And brothers and sisters in the room, those of us that have experienced this great salvation, you can consider yourself blessed like Mary. It's probably right that we pause so that we can uh, consider this phrase with a warning against undue exaltation of Mary as being morally unique. And I say that specifically morally unique because she's certainly unique in the fact that nobody has ever or will ever again give birth to the Son of God. She has that in her resume. But the Roman Catholic doctrines of her sinless life, perpetual virginity, and bodily assumption into heaven have no warrant in our New Testament. And in fact, there's actually an implicit warning against the excessive veneration of Mary later on in Luke's gospel. In chapter 11, Jesus is teaching, and after one of his teaching sessions, there's a woman that's in the crowd that cries out to him, and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you. And Jesus' response to her is this, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And if you understand the, the culture and the family unit in this time period, Jesus is being fairly blunt here. If he wanted to set any sort of precedent that Mary should be venerated in some sort of a moral class by herself, this would have been the time to do it. But he actually does the exact opposite. And if you look at our passage today, Mary even takes the focus off of herself. She says that the reason she'll be called blessed is not because of anything within her. Look at the text with me. It's because of the great things that God has done for her. 
She even ever acknowledges here, the reason of my blessing is not from me, but it is from God. And it's because of the miraculous work that he's done in my life. So if this is about the miraculous work done in her life, understand too that God has worked a miracle in yours as well. He's given you new life in the spirit. He's breaking you free from the bondage of sin. He's given to you eternal life and he has adopted you into his family. What could be greater than that? He has done great things for you and you are tremendously blessed. And it's for that reason, this great blessing that he's showered on you, that we get our third reason for singing. We sing to magnify the Lord. As we said earlier, Mary has taken survey of the situation. She's recognized what God has done in her life. And the reaction to that is to just burst forth with praise. In verse 46 and 47, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So what does that mean? How is it that someone can magnify the Lord? Maybe what's coming to your mind right now is the idea of a magnifying glass, where you have this small object and you hold it up to try to make it bigger in some way, but that's not what's happening here. It would be foolish for us to think as creatures that we could make the Lord bigger in any way, shape, or form. So what does Mary mean? Well, what she means here is that the one who magnifies the Lord isn't taking this small God and making him big. Rather, we're taking this big God and we are recognizing him for all that he truly is. And what's actually increasing is our love, our joy, and our worship for him. Notice the close link in those uh, verses there between magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God as Savior. The two will always go hand in hand. As we reflect on the magnificent glory and the holiness of this merciful God, we cannot help but rejoice in who he is and the great work that he's done in our lives. If you are familiar with John Piper at all, uh, this is probably going to be the most famous quote uh, that he has, but I think it displays our point well. It says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And, you know, in my study this week, it dawned on me that Luke didn't have to include either of the songs we've heard about already. He actually goes out of his way to break up the flow of the story so that he can include these songs. And you, want, you have to ask yourself, why would he do such a thing? Could it be that Luke wants to take Zechariah and Mary and hold them out to us as examples of what it looks like to respond appropriately to God's actions? These two people clearly understood that God was moving to save his people through these pregnancies. And the reaction from both of them is, it's the same. They just break out in praise and love for this God. And the funny thing is that in these moments, these two individuals, Zechariah and Mary, they didn't even have the full picture of what was going to happen. They didn't know how salvation would be accomplished. They didn't know what the lives of John the Baptist or Jesus would look like as they played out. But yet they still break out in praise. And for us, who live on the opposite side of history, we know the full scope of the story, and we have even become recipients of this salvation, how much more praise ought we to burst out in? If these two individuals could sing the way that they sung all those years ago, each and every day of our lives should be lived with joyful praise on our lips for our king. And so this is a busy month. December is always just chaotic. 
And you may feel like you're running all over the place. The kids have this rehearsal. I actually saw something online that was funny. It was like, uh, um, you know, the busiest month of the year, the schools have you dress up your kids every single day as well, as, as if we didn't have enough to worry about. And you go, that's, that's just the truth. And it seems like we have no time whatsoever in the month of December. But my encouragement to you guys would be this. Can you just take some moments this week to slow down, to pause, and to reflect on these great truths that we've just talked about this morning? To acknowledge the great things that the Lord has done for you and to sing his praises. Could it be that Luke includes this song just to remind us of how magnificent God is? To give breath to our lungs so that we could sing with this sort of heartfelt affection? to the one that's looked on us in our most helpless estate as lowly sinners and has extended mercy to us? Does he do this to remind us that grace is not for the proud but the powerless? Does he do it to remind us that we don't have to raise ourselves up to meet with God, but that he becomes low so that we could have a loving relationship with him? So my hope as I close this down is for, if you're an unbeliever in this room, and you have not experienced this relationship that I'm talking about, I pray that you would stick around after the service today, that you would talk to someone near you. You have a room full of people that have experienced the grace of Jesus that would like to know or that would like to help you experience that for yourself. And if you have experienced this relationship, please take a moment each day this week to do exactly what I've just outlined. Reflect on the sweetness of the gospel reflect on who God is, that he has met you with mercy even when you did not deserve it. Reflect on the great things that he has offered to you in his son, and hopefully you'll be able to joyfully sing along with Mary to your magnificent God. Let's pray. Lord, you are magnificent. You are glorious. You are holy. You are wonderful. And you are good. Lord, would you help us in this season to slow down and do exactly what was just outlined? Would you give us the wherewithal to spend moments with you in quiet times throughout our days, reflecting on this great salvation that you offer to us in the person of Jesus? God, praise your name for uh, coming into this earth, stepping into our situation, and offering up yourself as our sacrifice. Lord, as we take the time this week to reflect on these uh, just great truths that are contained in your word, I pray that you would stir our hearts with a deeper love and appreciation for who you are, that our souls would magnify your holy and great name, and out of our love for you, we would direct every one of our actions throughout all of our days for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.